Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions, capital raising, joint ventures, strategic alliances, real estate, affiliate and sponsorship deals, and more, including smaller deals that you can do without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for over 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. Gina Cocking serves as Chief Executive Officer. She returned to Colonnade Advisors as a Managing Director in 2014. Gina began her career in investment banking at Kitta Peabody and was an analyst at Madison Dearborn Partners and an associate at J.P. Morgan & Company. She was a vice president at Colonnade Advisors from 1999 to 2003. She then left to gain operating experience as a chief financial officer of Colbert Finance, a specialty finance company. She went on to become the chief financial officer in Healthcare Laundry Systems, a private equity-backed company for which she oversaw the successful sale to a strategic acquirer. She serves on the board of directors of CIB Marine Bank Shares, a bank holding company based in Waukesha, Wisconsin, that operates banking offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Listen, she holds some licenses. She's got a great educational background. Obviously, she's worked at some great firms. Gina, so happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Corey, for having me. So listen, obviously, huge amount of M&A experience from various uh, vantage points. You and I were talking prior to going on air about the fact that I said our teams didn't get a, a full time off during the holidays because of how busy we all are. We want to get into what's going on in the deal market and what you do and things like that. But I want to take you back before we do that to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is a, a banker and deal maker and a CFO and all that kind of stuff probably wasn't it. But you tell me. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer because medicine kind of grossed me out. And I'm like, what is a professional field I could go into? I'm like, well, of course, law. So I went to college thinking I was going to go to law school. And in fact, graduated from college and didn't get into the law school of my choice. So I'm like, oh, I'll work in investment banking for a couple of years. I loved it. And at the same time, my boyfriend, who's now my husband, was going through law school. And I'm like, that looks like the worst job in the world. I would <laughs> never do that. So it worked out perfectly. He's a lawyer. He's great at what he does. And I am so glad I'm not doing it. I love it. I love it. You know, it's funny because you went into college thinking you that you might be interested in that chose not to. I actually think the most people, the funny part is I actually went into college thinking I want to be a lawyer because I was in a special program at Tilden High School in Brooklyn called LPC, mm -hmm. which is Law, Politics, Community Affairs. Okay. And that convinced me I want to be a lawyer. Of course, that was like mock trials and going to jails, oh, cool. oh, but yeah. nothing to do with what I do now. But I think most people, most of the people I knew who became lawyers were like reasonably smart people who went to school uh, and they were like, okay, now I'm done with college. What do I do? MBA or law school? Right. You know, they, they were much less actually thinking coming into school that they want to be a lawyer. 
and then they ended up that way. So any case, sounds like you, you ended up in the right place as, you, as your husband did as well. One more question looking back. What was your first deal of any type? Could have been something smaller when you were younger or early in your career as a, as a banker, whatever comes to mind. Okay. If you really want to talk about the first deal, it's one that I got in a lot of trouble for. So okay. I grew up in the 70s and Star Wars was kind of big. And we had Star Wars playing cards, you know, like you do baseball cards. I had a stack sure. of uh, Star Wars playing cards. And we also had an acorn tree in the backyard. And I walked around the neighborhood and sold kids bags of acorns and one Star Wars cards for a dollar a bag. And so I was making a ton of money. And my mom found out and she's like, you're doing what? She made me give it all back. So that was my first bad deal. <laughs> oh, no. Oh. I see. I think that's a great. I'm not criticizing your mother. I'm sure there was a lesson. But I, I don't know. For me, that's a great entrepreneurial story. You know? uh, yeah. But my first like big deal yeah. that kind of really was a lot of fun it was when I was at Madison Dearborn Partners, we were on the buy side and we were looking at buying Six Flags Corporation. Oh, wow. Okay. And at the time, Six Flags was owned by Time Warner. Okay. So they took us around, Time Warner took us around in the Time Warner jet. And so that was pretty cool. Flying private to amusement parks around the country. We hit That's six bad. parks in three days and we went around with of course, the finance people, because we did like half day of finance or a couple hours of finance. And sure. then we would go and ride the coasters with oh, I love that. the chief roller coaster designer. It was incredible. It was my all time favorite deal. And we didn't end up investing, but it was a lot of fun. Chief roller coaster designer. Oh, yeah. So we were at, I don't remember which park it was. One of the parks, they had one of those coasters that's a free fall. You get in and yeah. you just fall flat. He wouldn't go on it. And I'm like, why aren't you going on it? And he said, well, I didn't design it. I think those things are crazy. I'm like, oh my gosh, I am not getting on that either. And I never have. No, no, <laughs> cheap roller coaster designer's not doing it. I'm not doing that. I think, I'm not doing it either. I think that's a smart move. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's funny. So usually I, I talk about people's careers and their, and their histories, whatever. And then we might get to what's going on in the market. But for whatever reason, maybe it's a new year, switch things up. Let's go in the other direction. Because okay. I did mention in the intro that prior to going on the air, you and I were talking about how busy us and our teams were at the end of the year. A lot of the second half or a lot of last year, we were, we were talking about how there was sort of these mixed factors going on where you have cost of capital going up significantly last year. Right. You've got some of the lenders pulling back. On the other hand, there was still a lot of private equity money out there that just needed to be deployed. You had mixed single inflation high, other parts of the economy good, certain sectors looking stronger, overall deal volume down in the macro level, certainly on the public company side, but very mixed bag. We were busy all year. Obviously, the Fed's indicated that it's maybe they're going to reduce rates this coming year. So with all that mix going on, like what were you seeing at the end of the year? I know we don't have a crystal ball, but we, you know what, mm -hmm. what's your feeling in terms of what's what it's looking like for twenty four. So the end of third quarter, beginning of fourth quarter, we started taking on a few more new transactions, and some are coming to market here in the next two months. And we found that some companies have been waiting on the sidelines, but they have been continuing to perform well. And we have found that for companies that have been performing well, especially in segments where some of their competitors haven't been over the past 14, 16 months, that they are very saleable right now. And they are coming out of a position of strength. 
Now, when I'm looking into 2024, I agree. Interest rates are coming down. That's going to fuel M&A activity. But almost more importantly, is in 21 and 22, there was a lot of PE money going out and doing acquisitions. And there were platforms being acquired, add-ons. They really were able to use, those companies were able to use 2023 as a time to go through integration, kind of get their house in order. Now that everything has settled down, I expect that those roll-ups will continue. As soon as interest rates start coming down, those will go like gangbusters because they will be well-positioned. They'll have their playbook in place, number one. Number two, there was a lot of deal activity in 2018 and 2019. Those companies are starting to age out in the PE portfolios. So we're going to see some M&A activity happening there. Yeah. No, I think that really makes sense, and it's consistent with what, you know, with what we're we're seeing definitely. And felt like it, it's some of the industries where we play heavily in, in financial services, in tech, and I've done you, you name an industry, I've probably done a deal in it from building cleaning <laughs> vitamins to whatever. But we do a lot in financial services and tech. And what we did see, you mentioned the rollups, we did see that the serial acquirers being the ones doing a lot, a lot of the deals in, in, in the more questionable markets. And I don't think my experience is that's not unusual, right? Your seasoned buyers are more likely to be active when things are questionable, whereas your first time buyer is unlikely to wade into a- That's right. That's right. It'll be an, act, an active year. Yeah. So what, talk, talk to me about the, the sectors. I mean, you smiled and nodded when I said, you know, <laughs> we're going to deal in every industry, but are there, are there focus areas in terms of sectors that you guys- There are. Here at Colonnade, we focus on business services and financial services. The business services segments tend to be more where they overlap with financial services. So in financial services, we work with companies that are balance sheet heavy, balance sheet intensive businesses like equipment finance companies, and we'll work with fee-based businesses within financial services. We will do work on the business services side with data analytics companies, marketing analytics companies, marketing technology companies, as they've related to financial services companies. Then we've also been doing a lot of work in automotive finance and insurance, auto F&I. So this is, we estimate about a $93 billion industry. So it includes companies that offer vehicle service contracts, tire and wheel contracts, appearance protection products, a lot of M&A activity has happened in that space. So we work with the entire vertical in that space. We work with the auto F&I administrators, the agencies, the insurance companies, the agents, and the technology companies in the space. So in that area we see picking up in terms of M&A in 2024 because new car sales were down second half of 22. And then in 23, we had high interest rates and lower car sales uh, the higher interest rates, I'm sorry, and high car prices really left very little room in the auto loan, in the loan to value to add in F&I products. Right. And so the beginning of 23, most of 23 was a tougher year for some of the auto F&I companies, but they've come out strong, I think, at your end. Got it. Yeah, it's interesting how different things affect the space. So yeah, but with the cars, but I, yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, prices, so first of all, they were coming out of the pandemic, there were inventory issues, right? So I think because there was scarcity, prices were up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember I actually had a car coming off lease and and looked at it and I said, 
I mean, I had a low mileage or whatever, so there were a lot of reasons to buy it. But I also looked at the prices of, of new cars, and I'm like, exactly. you know what? <laughs> the residual on this is looking pretty good. You know? We did the same thing. We did the exact same thing. I'm like, yeah, I'll keep this one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listen, there's some parallels, like it's similar to what happened in the home market, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of folks were, had low interest loans, and I was looking at what it would take, especially if they were going into the next house, if they were. Mm-hmm you know, retiring or going into rental or whatever. So it's interesting. But but some people I think over, I mean, I'd be interested in your view on this. Cost of capital obviously makes a difference. Interest rates make a difference. But I do think that some people overplay any single factor, including that one in the markets. And certainly with your background of not only being on the M&A side, but also being on the CFO on the finance side, you know, I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts on, on that comment. Well, I think interest rates really... For, for seasoned buyers, the private equity firms and others, it caused them to be more disciplined about pricing. They have to hit their returns. So it's, we did see multiples come down in the segments we cover compared to what we saw in 21. Uh, and they're back to normalized levels. And that will continue. It didn't mean that funding necessarily dried up. But there were also buyers were more disciplined and really wanting companies that had strong stories. And in auto F&I, for example, there's a little bit of uncertainty in the market still in 2023. So they didn't know how companies were going to do. So it wasn't necessarily the best time to go to market for some of those companies. We do a lot of work, as I said, on the balance sheet side and equipment finance companies. One of my favorite segments is automotive refi. So auto refi companies. In this area, we sold a company called Open Road Letting to carry on, uh, Clarion Capital in 20, uh, 2020-2021. And what they do is they market direct to consumers. We will help you refi your auto loan. And they work with money center banks some credit unions, large lending institutions. And they underwrite to the lending criteria of those banks and put the paper directly on the banks. It's a great deal for vehicle owners because if you have a car loan and you're six months into your car loan, you have better credit. And if you got your car loan through your local dealership, you probably didn't get a national rate. And you also had the markup on the rate. So by refinancing your auto loan, consumers can save sometimes a couple thousand dollars a month, a year, sorry, a couple hundred dollars a month. So what we're going to see is those companies are going to do really well as interest rates come down. Sure. And there was a, there were a number of PE-led deals in that space in 2020, 2021. Those companies are going to do great. And I expect them to then kind of flip, I would think, at the end of 24, early 25. Yeah. Do you focus more on the buy side or sell side? or, or- Sell side. At 70% of our work is sell side M&A. 25% is buy side. And then occasionally we'll do a capital raise. Our capital raises are more often related to one of two factors. This one less often. You know, we're working with a company, the owner's thinking about selling. And then we're like, you know, you could just do a dividend recap. And that works out pretty well for them. We haven't had that happen recently, but uh, not in this interest rate environment. And other times, it's more of a capital raise related to an acquisition. Got it. Got it. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can tell you about an incredible resource my team and I have put together for you. Secrets of Deal-Driven Growth, Creative Ways to Grow Your Business, Even in Challenging Times, is a powerful ebook that helps you take DealQuest podcast episodes and apply them to your own life and business. 
This is the ideal tool for anyone looking for creative ways to grow as dealmakers, and you can get yours now. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfordcom workbook and downloading your copy. While you're there, you can also consider joining our dynamic deal-driven community of founders, experts, small business owners, and entrepreneurs. Now back to the show. So let's talk about how your background formed. It was interesting in your bio where you started out, right, mm-hmm. on the side. In fact, it ended up at this company. Right. In some way. And then you, and then I was employee number one. <laughs> oh, okay. There, there you go. Yeah. And then your bio said you left to get experience in operating companies, doing or on the finance side, things like that. Uh, I always like to interview people who have different perspectives because I find that it's so easy no matter how high quality the place you're you get trained at, you know, if they're investment bankers, they look is a certain way. They look at it, lawyers look at accountants look at it certain ways, fine, right? Um right. and so talk to me a little bit about the different perspectives you were able to get because of your experience and how that's informed what you did. So I had the opportunity to be the CFO of an equipment finance company going into the financial crisis. So we had raised preferred equity. We had big bank lines. We were doing great. And I should caveat, not only were we just an equipment finance company, we were a class eight truck finance company, leading indicator in financial markets, right? So in, in 2007, our voluntary surrenders were just through the roof, December of 2007. So we saw the writing on the wall. Um, I learned a lot through that process of being in the CFO seat in just an impossible market to be doing equipment finance. So I have the scars on my back from that one. I then became a CFO of a private equity-backed company, Healthcare Laundry Systems. HLS was the largest industrial laundry in the country at that time. And the PE firm that came in, Blue Wolf Capital, came in and they took it as a not-for-profit. It was a not-for-profit owned by seven hospital systems and made it a for-profit. So that one was just a ton of fun because it was like a business school case. I got to walk in and say, okay, what needs fixing? And by the way, the rest of the leadership team was outsourced to a third-party company. Just some confusing things about the industry. So I was the only executive who was employed by the company and reporting to the private equity firm. So I walked into the warehouse and like, why do we have all this inventory when our leading supplier is 45 minutes down the road? So we cleared all that up and and sold things. We started actually collecting on past dues. The operations team reconfigured the lines. We added new, more, we did some analysis and was the most profitable business, added more, more profitable business. And we were able to basically triple EBITDA pretty quickly. And we sold the company, the private equity firm sold the company in under two years. And during that time, we also did a dividend recap. And so it was a strong cash flow. So that was great. I had a lot of, and I saw the company through the sale process. I actually got to work with an investment banker selling company at Duff and Phelps and kind of be in that seat. So that was a lot of fun. Now, when I work with clients and- we're going through what they can expect. I'm like, look, I've been where you are. It's going to be horrible. It is going to be a terrible experience. At some point, you're going to yell at me. You're going to hate us. And in the end, you're going to always remember us fondly. But it's a hard process to go through. And having 
having that experience, I think helps our clients because they can feel a little more comfortable. They know when I'm asking for something or I'm telling them they have to do X, Y, Z. It's not only because I'm wearing the pinstripe suit from Wall Street, but because I've been in their seat and I know why it really matters. Yeah. And I'm sure that makes a big difference with the clients. And also I'm surprised. I think in the, certainly on the, on the larger deals, the really big deals has always been true. I think in the low middle market, it used to be less true. It's become much more professionalized. I used to be much more amazed. It still happens now, but not as much where how unprepared some sellers were, even when they were represented to go to market. And one of the things that I always say to my clients is whether it's the kind of pre-due diligence we do for them mm-hmm. as lawyers or what I tell the finance people to do or when I'm working with a banker is, you know, I always say to them this, listen, you got to understand something. The way you present and how comfortable you make the buyer feel or <laughs> uncomfortable, right, has a big, big influence on one, whether the deal gets done at all. And second of all, right. whether they're going to try to renegotiate or shave you down on due diligence in terms of price or t- deal terms or whatever. And I said, what I try to explain to them is psychology-wise, and I mentioned this on this podcast before. I said, listen, at the buyer level, let's say it's the CEO or the you know the acquisition guy, gal, whatever it is, makes, who makes the decision that they're moving forward. Then they have a whole due diligence due diligence teams that come in, whether it's the finance people, legal people, the HR people, the whatever, right? And the mentality of those people are they'd actually rather, and I'm making a generalization, I'm not saying everybody's the same, whatever, but again, they, their job is they, they would rather have the deal not go through than to have it go through and have them miss something. Right. Exactly. And, and are. somebody say, why does it do, right? So they're looking for things. And the problem is, I always say, well, there's smoke, they, they assume there's much, there's fire. So talk to us. I know I did a long setup there and handed it to you, but I'm such a, like this pre due diligence process, or even before you're in due diligence, it's even pre pre getting a company ready for sale when you're, especially in your role, when you're representing them on the on the sell side. That people who don't know here, they just talk about packaging a company. They think that's much more so just putting together the the marketing materials and the book and the whatever. Right. But getting them ready is such an important part of the process. I think the industry's getting better, but not everybody does as well as other people. We like ideally to start talking to a company a year, two years before they're even ready to engage us to go to sale. We have a presentation we go through with companies called How to Prepare for a Sale. And it's an hour long. We go through like everything to how you should organize your files, to digitizing, get your licenses in order, et cetera. That's why my partner, Jeff, and I did a podcast two years ago on basically how middle market M&A works, because we wanted business owners to be more prepared for that process. Once we, And then once we have those conversations, we also want to be there for these middle market companies as basically a trusted confidant. Yeah. You know, we find that you know, at larger investment banks, teams turn over a lot. Colonnade has been here. This is actually... 2024 is our 25th year. So we've wow. been here for 25 years. We're not going anywhere. Uh, we have a wealth of knowledge. And so we are. We meet companies we're like, we're here for you. Give us a call. We worked with one company for 10 years before we finally sold the company. So we're here to bounce ideas off of, think, of, think through issues, et cetera. But then once we get engaged, the first thing we do, like any other investment bank, is we start going through our diligence. And- 
our base list of document requests is about 300 items in, for some companies. And clients are like, oh my God, like you cannot possibly want all this. And then, so we prioritize it. And they're like, they look at the third category, we one, two, and three. And the three is like, oh, we're never gonna have to get those. We have learned to insist that before we go to market, we have 80% of those number threes, because otherwise we end up having missteps in process. And it was great. We were recently involved in a transaction on the sell side. And when the buyer came in with their extensive diligence list, we had 85% of it in the data room. And it was probably a thousand documents at that point, but that deal is going along nicely. And the company killed themselves in working with us and got to the point of hating us probably earlier than most of the time in transaction. But right now they're like, oh, thank God you had us do that. This is, we would have been really embarrassed and stressed if we had to be answering all this now. Okay. So it, it works, but it takes a lot of work and it takes discipline on our part and our client's part to be willing to hold back and going to market until we have that all in hand. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, you and I are so aligned and it's not always, I've just seen, I've seen too many deals, you know, run into trouble because, because, and really where, listen, if there are issues that come with due diligence, there are real issues, then that's a problem. Right. But hopefully doing the pre-work, you're going to avoid those, you're going to clean right. things up, you're going to figure it out. But what's really even frustrating more is when there's just some small, there's like something that appears to be an issue is not really a problem if you really got down to it, but it mm-hmm. slows the deal or it spooks the buyer or it delays things. And then the market change, like this, a million things that can happen in a deal. And I often talk about there's a pace to a deal. And if you artificially slow it down or artificially push it forward, you can run into trouble. And that's really an art to have that right. sense of the rhythm. Uh, that's know, right. Of a deal. That's right. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting to me because I do think that, you know, that does come with with experience. And I know that experience you had in the other roles you played, that gives you that additional perspective. So it's not surprising to me that you start with folks a year or two in advance and have this whole process you take them through, which is a great service to the clients because that's that's what it takes. I remember a deal, and also that pre-research, I remember a deal, we had a client, privately held company, typical sort of I mean, there was a main guy and a couple of minority owners, but it was really run as a mom and pop. We, then this is going back about 20 years. So it was when things were less standardized. And we really just spent a lot of time making sure that they were buttoned up and cleaned up, whatever. They were selling to a public company also. So that was- That's extra extra care. And uh, unfortunately we did a good job. We we even went as far as to do some of the work for the, we identified every contract and the assignability and whatever and tagged it for them. Yeah, we did like their due diligence for them because we want to press them. And we ended up coming down with it was an issue. It turned out to be a disagreement from the buyer's side with their accounts, thought something was should have been characterized differently or treated differently mm-hmm. for accounting purposes. And our accounts thought differently, but it turned out properly the buyer's accounts were right. And it could have been, I mean, this wasn't, this was a, it was a, this is probably a, I think it was about a $25 million deal purchase mm-hmm. price wise. But listen, this is the far majority of that was going to the one guy, right? It was a nice, yeah. uh, and there was about a $3.8 million discrepancy. And frankly, I think the buyers were right. But the thing that we figured out in, in our due diligence was that the public company needed to get this deal done that uh-huh. year, its projections, its promises to projections to its shareholders. Mm-hmm. So we ended up, even though I think the buyer was right, we ended up holding firm on that. 
And my comment, you know, to them was, I understand what you're saying, but this is the number that my client, as is mine, he's not, and and because we knew there was no one else in the industry that fit that slot, <laughs> that would have them be able to get that deal done that year and be able to hit their numbers. You know, we that we, is fantastic. Worked out right. They didn't shave us a penny down. So oh, your client must have loved you. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, and uh, especially because he was kind of the guy. So funny how clients are so different. He was one of the guys who was like, he's like Corey. Listen, I know myself. I want to be as minimally involved in this process of whatever. I don't want to be in negotiating meetings. I don't want to, I want you to handle it for me. He said, you know, he knew he was too nice. Like, not that I'm not nice, but he would give in too easily. He's not, right. he, he wasn't a good negotiator. Sure. He wanted it. So that actually served us well in, in, in those cases. Um, what I always try to remind my clients is, especially when our clients, the management team or the owners are staying on with the new buyer. Yes. You, you they don't want to have, they don't want to, and they shouldn't be in a position to be in conflict during the deal with their potential employer yeah. or who they're selling to. It just, I mean, that's a, that is a bad mix for future, future working environment. And like, we are here to be the bad guy. Yeah. That's what you pay us for. We'll say and do whatever you need us to do. And frankly, if, Later on, somebody's giving you a hard time about how your investment bankers handled something in the negotiations. Just say, I have no idea. Couldn't control them. They went, they just went off the ranch. Yeah. Okay with that? You know what? We're I'm just here saying, to like, protect yeah. you. I'm like, listen, if you got to throw me under the bus at some point, throw me right under, ahead. Right? Like that's part of what you pay me for. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> yep. We're tough. We can take it. <laughs> Love it. Love it. A lot of times on this podcast, I, I talk about mindset and I have this thing that I talk about frequently. And I always like to get people's perspective on it, where I think there's a different mindset that an entrepreneur has than an employee. And again, I don't I don't judge this, right? There's right. no one's better know thyself, right? There are some people right. we we're very big in the in the financial services space in terms of investment advisors. We're one of the leading firms in the country that help people break away from Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, UBS, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, mm-hmm. for people who want to leave Mother Merrill, so to speak, and become entrepreneurs and manage their mm-hmm. own money. And I'm a big advocate for that space. I think the independent space is really the way it's at. And there's a million reasons, fiduciary, all these things. But I also, I'm the first one to say it's not for everybody. No. There will be employed advisors at Merrill Lynch or the like, right, for a long, long time. And that's mm-hmm. the right space for them. But I also think there's this additional mindset shift or mindset that you need to have to be a deal maker. Not every entrepreneur is a deal maker. Some entrepreneurs are phenomenal at building businesses organically right? Mm-hmm. Sales, marketing, right. Right, great products and services. Exactly. What do you think has, what's the difference between those clients you work with who are really, you know, have that deal maker mentality versus the ones that don't? Yeah. So it's more something that I see, we work with a lot of entrepreneurs, but it's more something I see on the buy side. And I see it between yeah. private equity firms and strategics that are doing acquisitions. Yeah. You know, I think it was Richard Thaler, the economist who won the Nobel Prize in behavioral economics, who talked a lot about this. It is much more painful for somebody to lose something than to win something. And if you are an employee and you make a mistake in diligence, as you were saying, or you really advocate for a deal that goes bad, that is bad for you as an employee because your bonus is going to be hit or you could lose your job. If you do a good job, you're like, woohoo, you get your $10,000 bonus that year. And so strategics, we are we always look at 
strategic offers versus PE offers differently because the strategics were like, they're not in the business. The people are not incentivized to get deals done. PE guys, PE guys have got to get a deal done to make their move. So they will figure out ways to work through it. And so I see massive differences there between those two groups. Corporates, especially you're dealing with corporate M&A team, we're always wary and we kind of take everything they say with a grain of salt because there are a lot of reasons that we really won't ever be privy to to why a deal could go south when it's a strategic buying a company. Yeah. But so let's push into that a little bit, financial bias versus strategic bias, because there are benefits of a strategic buyer, right? Oh, absolutely. There's other, sometimes you can get, often you think the financial buyers are giving top dollar and in many deals that's true. Mm-hmm. But sometimes that's not true, right? Sometimes right. strategics have the, the value to a strategic buyer because it's yes. strategic is a lot higher than the value to a financial buyer or the ability to have flexibility in deal structures or terms or things like that mm-hmm. because the firms are where they did. So talk to me a little bit more about that that tension and that decision between sure. a strategic buyer and a financial buyer. Yeah, with the strategics, the, the appeal with an, a strategic can be, number one, they are more willing to pay all cash. And so if you have an owner of a business that is interested in walking away because he's retiring or there's a generational shift, they a strategic can be a great home for the business because they can get all their cash, basically, at close. It can also be great for the employees. So it could be a small company, middle market companies making five or six million in EBITDA, and they could become part of a 200 million in earnings company that's publicly traded. The career path for the young people is totally different. So you know, it's it can be pretty exciting for those types of companies. A private equity firm, you know, Oh, and a strategic may be paying for the synergies. So we always like that. Right. Now, a private equity firm, you have more certainty to close than with a strategic. Generally, I think that's the case. But with a private equity firm, they will want rollover in equity and try to figure that out in some ways. So sometimes the owner, you're looking at two bids, the owner's going to have to leave more capital in the business in a private equity deal. Working under a private equity firm, having worked for at a private equity firm and having been worked as an executive for a private equity backed company, it's tough. You, I, every single day, I was on the phone with the P firm and they were calling me up at five o'clock. Gina, what's the update? Gina, what's this report? What's that? They are intensely focused on what's going on in the company. And so if your leadership team has been a little more relaxed, a little looser, maybe in how they did things, being private equity driven is not for everyone. And it can cause a lot of tension or even failures for employees at companies. So sometimes when we are working with a company and during the process, we get to know the leadership team and the management, we will even, we will lay out for them kind of what their new reality will look like under these buyers. That's one of the reasons that we kind of stick to our knitting in the industries we cover. As I mentioned, auto F&I is a big space for us. Equipment finance. Another big pillar of our work is insurance premium finance. We know all these industries really well. So we know the buyer universe really well. So when we talk to our clients we can say, look, we have heard XYZ. This has been my interactions with the company. So-and-so from so-and-so company says this about them. You just so the buyer's going, the seller's going in with their eyes wide open to what life will be like day two. Yeah. 
Oh, that, that really makes sense. Listen, that uh, that industry experience, right? There, are, it's always interesting because, to some extent, and listen, we do it as well. I always say to folks, you know, sometimes I get a client comes and says, "Hey, have you ever done a deal in Ohio for a manufacturing company that produces this on you know every other Tuesday?" It's like so specific. <laughs> like, and, and on the one hand, I push back on those people to say, "Hey, listen, if you know how to do deals, you know how to do deals. Right. You can learn the industry, etc." On the other hand, we do have a couple of niches where we do a lot of it, and there is a level of industry experience and and connections and an understanding that's that's that that's valuable. So I think I think there's an argument on, on uh, right on both sides. Right, yeah. you know, my partner Jeff and I always say like we grew up in investment banking doing a little bit of everything. I did food deals, I did industrials, I had a nutraceutical deal at one point. I obviously yeah. did an amusement park. I mean, you can do deal structuring, deal structuring, learning how to ask the right questions and to tell a company's story. That's all skills and talents that we have developed over time. But we believe that our focus, it gives our clients a little bit of an extra edge. We Our tagline is focus, expertise, results. And that's really played well for our clients. Frankly, when a deal lands in our laps that is not in one of our sectors, sometimes we actually take it on because there's a compelling reason. And we're like, okay, well, you know what? We know how to do this deal. Maybe if we do this transaction, we'll do 10 more in this space. So it's a worthwhile investment. Sure. Good stuff. So before I ask you my final two questions, is there anything else that you, whether it's in terms of what's going on in the market, whether it's an interesting deal story that you've had on success or a failure or whatever it is, anything come to mind that you want to share before we go to the final two questions? I would say that my biggest advice for companies as they're getting ready is just to get organized and be prepared yeah. and do the work before they go to market. It makes a big difference. Not It makes a big difference in how successful, what these successful outcomes will be for the company. It can make even a turn or two on the multiple difference. Yeah. And yeah, we spend a lot of time coaching clients or potential clients on how to be ready for the transaction. Usually valuable. So people want to find out more about the company? Where do they go? Sure. The best place is our website, www.coladv.com. So Colony Advisors, coladv.com or on LinkedIn. So we are pretty active on LinkedIn. And what we do is we post a lot of content about the industries we cover. So we do a lot, for example, in automotive. So you'll see a lot of posts about new car sales, what the CFPB is doing in the finance industry, what's happening in equipment leasing this quarter. And so we find that we have a lot of followers, both on the private equity side and just companies that want to see what's happening and so they can also learn more about their own industries. Yeah, that's great stuff. My final question on the podcast is always about my highest value in life, my highest ideal, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom around the world from all, for all people from oppression to why I've been an entrepreneur for decades and haven't had a loss. <laughs> what does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Uh, that's a great question. I think, I think freedom to me means being able to make my own choices. And that's why I'm here at Colonnade. I can help. I can drive the business. I can help shape where we're going. 
But with freedom, there's cost. I'm the one who wakes up in the middle of the night and goes, oh gosh, we've got to close the next five deals or else these bad things will happen. So freedom is not free. There's a lot of work that goes into it. A lot of, uh, there's a lot of pressure. It was not free. Love that. No. No, it is. Yeah, thanks for being such a great guest on the Deal Quest podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Deal Quest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the Deal Quest community. The Deal Den is a place where entrepreneurs, high-level executives, and business leaders come together, support each other's growth and success and share what's working best, as well as what challenges we are facing right now. You will get input not only from me, but from all of our members. We collaborate and serve each other. To join us, go to coreycupfer.com slash deal I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.